Lesson 5 uh, on Nehemiah, overcoming opposition in completing God's work. Uh, Nehemiah, as you see there in your notes, records, and I think most of you are familiar with the book, the rebuilding of the wall of uh, Jerusalem following Israel's 70-year Babylonian captivity, which was accomplished in a miraculous 52 days, despite the fact uh, the project encountered strong opposition. So there's much that we can learn here in light of our theme as we are experiencing increasing hostility against our ministries throughout the nation. Uh, there's much to glean from uh, the story of Nehemiah. So the first thing I want us to do is just basically to walk through the book and look at the weapons of the enemy. Uh, what the enemy brought against Nehemiah and the workers and the project, and then to briefly look at well, what was Nehemiah's response? How did he respond to those attacks? And then we'll conclude, as we've been doing for every lesson, okay, what can we learn? What can we take from this uh, for our own lives and our ministries? So look there at your notes at the very first weapon, or get this down in your notes. The first weapon was... They began to question their motives, questioning motives. Now, you may want to just take your Bibles, uh, open, that up, open your Bibles up to Nehemiah right now. Uh, if not, you may just want to sit back. I mean, the references are there for you. I'll be reading an, uh, a good bit of Scripture from Nehemiah. So just whatever is uh, best for you, you can just sit back and relax uh, knowing that you already have the references and you can refer to them later if you'd like to follow, uh, that's, that's all uh, well as, uh, okay as well. Uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, let me focus on verse 10. It says, And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very di displeasing to them that someone, and that someone is Nehemiah, had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Then go down and look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us, saying and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now what we need to see is that Jerusalem, as the work begins, just almost overnight becomes surrounded by enemies on all sides. Uh, led by an unholy trinity of men who hate God's people. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Sanballat was a ruthless politician, and he wanted control of the territory. Tobiah was a religious charlatan with influential relatives and friends inside Jerusalem. But his only objective was to get into the coffers of the temple to pad his own pockets. Very greedy, materialistic individual. Geshem was a very powerful Arab, and he hated the Jews. Geshem had control of a very large confederation of Arab tribes, and he had great military power. So each of these three men brought something different to the table in terms of opposition. Sanballat had the political clout to do the job against them. Tobiah 
could provide all the inside intelligence that they would need because of his uh, influential Jews allied with him. And then Geshem had the military power to bring the work on the wall to an end. And their first attack was to question the motives for rebuilding the wall. They accused Nehemiah and the Jews of rebellion against the Persian king, which of course was a lie. It was absolute nonsense because Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king, had secured the king's permission to rebuild the walls. And so notice how Nehemiah responds with a very simple but powerful statement of faith. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, he says, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying we will rebuild the wall for God's glory. Therefore, God will give us success. This is God's work to be completed by God's people, and there will be no compromise with God's enemies. Therefore, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gesem, you can take a walk. You and your people have no right, you have no claim in the city of Jerusalem. Now go to the second weapon, and you're going to see as we go through this, things continue to intensify and get ratcheted up. The second weapon is ridicule, ridicule that we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, Look at Nehemiah 4, verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, just like there are so many people in this nation furious about what you do, and angry, and mock you, just like they mock the Jews. Thomas Carlyle called ridicule the language of the devil. Now listen. The devil will always try to play mind games with God's people to destroy our faith. The devil knows without faith, it is impossible to please God. The devil knows that it is our faith in him that releases his power to accomplish his work. Therefore, the devil will use ridicule to create doubt that leads to anxiety And anxiety brings death to faith. Typically what will happen, and you've experienced it in this realm of ministry, the devil shoots bullets of ridicule just in rapid fire in order to frighten us and stop God's work or at least to slow it down. So so look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. And there are six bullets of ridicule that are fired at Nehemiah and the rebuilders. Just boom, 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 boom. Uh, The first one in verse 2, he says, And he spoke, referring to Sanballat, in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of uh, Samaria, and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Let me interpret that for you. In light of your failures in the past, why in the world do you think you're going to succeed now? All you are is a bunch of losers. (laughs) Second one, also verse 2. Are they going to restore it for themselves? 
Again, the interpretation. Do you really believe? I mean, do you really believe building a stupid wall is going to change the miserable conditions in your city? And at this point, the conditions in the city were not good. Uh, they were struggling economically in a lot of other ways. Uh, third ridicule. Can they offer sacrifices? The interpretation. Hey, come on. It's going to take more than prayer and worship to succeed. Fourth ridicule. Can they finish in a day? Interpretation. You do not have a clue how difficult this task is going to be. And I guarantee it won't be long before you are calling it quits. The fifth ridicule. Can they revive stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? The interpretation. You don't have the resources to get this job done. Any of y'all struggle with that one? <laughs> and then look at the uh, sixth ridicule. Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him, and he said, even what they are building. If a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Interpretation, you are wasting your time. Even if the wall is built, it will never remain standing because we're not going to allow it. Now, I need to point out a couple of things. First, much of the ridicule was actually based on truth. The devil is a master at reminding us, uh, us of our past failures and present struggles to discourage us. Remember, one of his names is what? He's the accuser of the brethren. And when we face ridicule, when we face slander, mocking, we realize our battle is not flesh and blood. Those are just human instruments being manipulated by the devil to get at us, again, to destroy our faith, to discourage us, to stop the work, or at least, as I mentioned, slow it down. And reality is, in this story, the people had a long history of being losers. At this point, they had been back in the land a good long while. And they had not had a good track record up to this point. The living conditions in the city were absolutely miserable. It would take more than prayer to rebuild the walls. It would take great effort. It would take great sacrifice beyond what any, any person could imagine. And although the king provided timber to rebuild the gates of the wall, do you know what they had to use to rebuild the wall itself? The debris from the old wall, the debris from the old wall that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, the task was daunting. It was more than daunting. It appeared to be impossible, especially for a group of people who had known nothing but defeat. Nehemiah acknowledges at the end of verse 5 that the Ridicule demoralized the builders. He actually acknowledged it. It demoralized them. But look at Nehemiah's response in verses 4 and 5. This is great. This is his response to the ridicule. Hear, O oh our God, how we are despised. 
Return their reproach on their heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. The point that I want you to see, it took just one man of faith to turn the tide and win the day. Nehemiah was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was just an ordinary layman who refused to accept the status quo and surrendered his life to God to make a difference. A man who refused to listen to the ridicule and instead placed his trust in God and in God alone. You know, D.L. Moody, most of you are familiar with him, he was one of the most unlikely candidates to become one of the great evangelists in America's history. He only had a fifth grade education. If you know his story, his grammar was absolutely atrocious. The newspapers would crucify him related to his messages just on his grammar alone. But a British revivalist by the name of Henry Varley spoke these words to D.L. Moody in a private conversation that they had. And these words forever changed Moody's life. Varley said this to Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with one man fully consecrated to him. The Holy Spirit drove those words into D.L. Moody's heart and Moody responded, I aim to be that man. Nehemiah was that man in his day. Nehemiah refused to accept the ridicule and instead he bounced his thoughts to God in prayer and asked God to fight the enemy for them. So the question is, will you be that man or that woman today in your ministry, in your community, in your life? Look at the third weapon. Then here comes intimidation. Intimidation. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 8 we read, And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Now the opposition really intensifies. Now their lives and their families are in jeopardy if they continue God's work. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse 9. But we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Are you beginning to see the importance of prayer in overcoming opposition to God's work? But notice there's, a, there's a, a, a very subtle but a very important change right here. Prayer has moved now from Nehemiah praying to the people joining in corporate prayer. Did you notice that? But we prayed to our God. Corporate prayer. Look at the fourth weapon, fear and discouragement. Fear and discouragement. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. And there is much rubbish. And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said... 
They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times. I mean, they're just hearing it over and over again. They will come up against us from every place where you may turn. The first truth we need to see is that fear and discouragement is absolutely inevitable in doing God's work. That's one of the, been the, one of the consistent themes in our lessons throughout the conference, that we're never going to truly escape fear and discouragement. It's how we respond to it. But what we do need to see in these verses is there are four causes. This isn't in your notes. You're going to have to get this down. Four causes for fear and discouragement. And the first one is loss of strength. Loss of strength. He said, thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. In other words, the people had worked long, they had worked hard, and they were getting tired. How long had they worked? We were, we were told in verse 6 that the wall at this point was half built, half built. The newness had worn off. They now knew, they really knew how difficult it would be to complete the work, and that reality began to take an emotional toil on them. And you all can all relate to this. But not only loss of strength... Right behind that came loss of vision. He says, yet there is much rubbish. In other words, they saw, saw no light at the end of the tunnel. They lost the vision of not only the finished project, but they also lost vision of God Himself. They became so focused on the size of the task, they lost sight of the size of their God. They became so focused on their inabilities, their inadequacies, they lost sight of God's ability. That nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is impossible with God. And then this led to the third cause behind fear and discouragement, loss of confidence. It says, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Have you ever been there before? This is just beyond, I can't do this anymore. What happens when you lose confidence? You lose heart. You lose motivation. You think, I'll never catch up. I'll never finish. And then the fourth thing, loss of security. Notice, and our enemy said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And then I, I've always loved this about, you know, these Jews that are hearing these rumors and ten times. I, I like how it meant it. Ten times. It's like over and over we're hearing this. They're, they're going to come up against us from every place, and they're going to just tear us up. Uh, bottom line, here's the thing you need to see. Bottom line, right now, they are in full-scale panic. They became so afraid of a possible future enemy attack, they totally lose sight of God as a present reality. And let me pause right there. That is the essence of what worry and anxiety is. The word worry in the New Testament in the Greek word is merimneo. That word literally means simply to divide or to tear apart. It really gives what worry does to us. In other words, what worry is, it's where I become so concerned over what might or might not happen in the future. I'm so concerned about that. Something it's not even here. I have no control over at this point that I totally lose sight of God in this moment as a present reality. 
And at that point, you do lose your faith. You do become. And you know, to put it in very simple terms, here's, here's what worry is. It's simply meditating on your problem. And what's faith? Meditating on God's Word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And because God constructed us in such a way that you cannot think on two things at the same time, you're responsible for, before God about your thought life and what you do focus on. Again, God knows you're going to struggle with fear. He knows you're going to struggle with discouragement. That in and of itself is not sinful. I mean, He realizes the frailty of our humanity, but how am I going to respond to that? Am I going to choose to meditate on the problem? And you know what happens. You meditate on the problem, and the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it, and it just crushes you, the weight of that. Or you can say, no, I choose to bounce my thoughts, bounce my heart to God, to God's Word, and to focus and meditate on Him, His greatness. His awesomeness, His majesty, that nothing is impossible to Him. His promises, like we talked about yesterday, to be an anchor uh, for, my, uh, for my soul. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse 14. He says, when I saw their fear, I spoke. I, he says, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember, notice, he's saying, get your eyes off the problem. Start looking to God. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And then go down to verse 20. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding their spears from dawn until the stars appeared. Notice what Nehemiah did to move them from fear and discouragement to faith in God. First, he turned their attention from the size of their problem to the size of their great and awesome God. The second thing he did, he challenged them to em embrace what they viewed as an impossible situation as an opportunity for God to get the glory. It goes back to our Jericho last night. That's all Jericho was. It was an opportunity, brilliantly disguised by God as an impossible situation, so that He would get the glory. And that's what was happening here. And so he says, see this as an opportunity for God to get the glory. And then third, he reminded them, united we stand, divided we fall. He united the people in prayer. He developed a plan of action to defend themselves in case of an enemy attack. And then fourth, don't miss Nehemiah's general tone, just his general tone that he's communicating very powerfully to the people. Basically is, stop. No more complaining about your stinking inability. That's not going to get us anywhere. Let's start celebrating our master's invincibility. That's what he's saying. The fifth weapon that you see there in your notes, it's the weapon of greed. 
I, I just don't have time to deal long with this. Uh, but bottom line, what you have here is, and, and this, is, this is important to see, although we're not going to linger long. When the, enemies, when the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, from outside opposition, folks, he's going to begin attacking on the inside. And one of his greatest, greatest weapons is just the selfishness of God's people and our own pride and manipulating that, to take advantage of that, to divide us, to where we begin to war, wound one another, hurt uh, one another. And just take the time as you go back over this, uh, and you'll see how Nehemiah, he came at this with a just a ferociousness that's just, just, he just would not let this go. He knew it had to be dealt with, and he hits it head on. He doesn't mince any words. He goes right to the people that are creating the problem, and he deals with it. And, and that's important for us to realize. You know, we, we talked about last night that we're not to focus on so much success in ministry, but what? Holiness of heart and life. And the reason for that is God's power is released through the purity of His people. So we need to be very, very committed to maintaining the purity of our ministry, to maintaining unity and not becoming divided, to knowing a love greater than our differences, a unity in the midst of our diversity for the glory of God. Look at the sixth weapon. It's compromise. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall. Now go down to verse 2. That Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Shepherim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. Now go to verse 4. And they sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them the same way. It's obvious the enemy now has changed their, they've changed their tactics. If we cannot whip them, let's try to join them, and then we'll take over. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on. And folks, once the enemy gets a foothold in a ministry, he will weaken it until it will ultimately fall. In God's work, there can be no fellowship with light and darkness. And one of the primary responsibility of Christian leaders, of our boards, of our directors, is to protect, protect the work from false teachers, from prophets, from wolves in sheep's clothing. Look, uh, and so notice Nehemiah, Nehemiah's very curt response in verse 3 to this offer to compromise. So I sent messengers to them saying... I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should I, the work stop while I come down to talk to you? <laughs> I, I love the simplicity of Nehemiah. You know, he, he just stays so stalwart and so focused on completing the work. He will not let anything divert him from that. A great lesson for us. So the seventh weapon, the seventh weapon, character assassination. In Nehemiah 6, look at verses 5, 6, and 7. Then Sambalat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, 
And Gashmu, that's Geshem, the Arab, says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. See, now the enemy resorts to gossip, to rumor, to fake news, if you want to call it that. Whatever you, again, whatever you want to call it, to discredit Nehemiah. That's all they're trying to do is discredit Nehemiah to character assassination. And look at Nehemiah's response in verses 8 and 9. Then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O Lord, strengthen my hands. Then look at the eighth, the final weapon that's brought against them, and that's conspiracy from within. Also in chapter 6, talks about uh, verse 13, he was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. The, the background of this, and I, again, can't go into great detail, but there's a number of prophets, uh, religious leaders inside the city that literally become bought off by Tobiah and Sabalit. I mean, they buy them. They're, they're secret plants there. And, and, and they tell Nehemiah, these folks that have been balled up, they tell Nehemiah, there's a plot to kill you tonight, and therefore you need to flee to the temple for safety. And look at Nehemiah's response in verse 11. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then once again, Nehemiah puts his trust in God in prayer. Verse 14, remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to their work, their works of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Look at verses 15 and 16. I love this. So the wall was completed. Amen. On the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished by the help of God. Amen? And you know, I love this. You know, there's no other explanation than God did it. And the other thing I, I... And so bottom line, if you fear God and follow Him, don't miss this, beloved. If you fear God and follow Him, you never need fear the enemy. What we learn from Nehemiah is, one of the greatest lessons in the book of Nehemiah, you are indestructible until your work on earth is done for God. And that's why Romans 8.31, if God be for us, what? Who can be against? And I, and, I, and, I, and I do love this. Do you remember what uh, um, one of the enemies said, one of the points of ridicule, if even, you know, hey, if they build the wall, even if a fox should jump on it, it would, it would crumble down. Do you know how they celebrated the rebuilding of the wall? They 
divided into two groups. I'm talking about all the people of Jerusalem. Nehemiah led one group. Ezra led the other group. They had singers. They had praisers. And all of the people get on the wall. And then Nehemiah's group goes one way. Ezra goes the other way. And they walk around the walls and meet together. And on top of that wall have this magnificent worship and praise service. And the scripture says their singing and their joy could be heard for miles. Can you imagine what that did to them stinking enemies of God as they heard that praise and joy? Now, lessons learned from Nehemiah, and I literally maybe have five, six, seven minutes to get through this. Number one, accept the fact that opposition against God's work will be inevitable, innumerable, and inescapable. You're never going to get away from it. But when it comes, rejoice. Why rejoice? Because opposition comes against success, not failure. The brighter God's people shine for Christ, the more visible a target we make for the enemy. So, folks, don't get discouraged. We are winning. I'm talking about the pregnancy center movement. We are winning one baby at a time, one woman at a time, one boyfriend at a time. We, are, we greatly outnumber now the number of abortion clinics in the nation. We've seen the numbers go down. I could go on and on. I hope you read the recent report that came out. They gave a detailed report. You can get it through Heartbeat, CareNet, NIFLA. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, ask for it. They can send it to you uh, via email. But it's an extensive report on what our ministries collectively did in 2017. The lives that were saved, the people that were ministered to. It's an awesome report. It will greatly encourage you to see that. And so we never, in the midst of discouragement, I know we have ups and downs, we are winning. So rejoice. Opposition comes against success, not failure. And realize, this is just a reality, the brighter we shine for Christ, the more visible the target we make. Number two, when opposition comes, do not get defensive, but take the offensive through prayer. Talk more, here's a great lesson Nehemiah teaches us. Talk more to God than to your critics. And follow Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's pattern of prayer. His prayer that we find in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. We don't have time to read the prayer, but let me give you the basic elements that you see there in your notes. First, first thing he did was to praise God for His greatness. Now, why is it important when we encounter opposition to begin by going to God with praise? Because it takes your focus off the circumstances and places them on your awesome God for whom nothing is impossible. How do you increase your faith? Not grunting and groaning, trying to get more faith. 
You increase your faith by looking to the faithful one and leaning on him. Then the next thing he did, he reminded God of his promises. We talked about this yesterday. God doesn't, when we go through adversity, try to explain himself, but he gives his promises to be anchored. So he just reminded God of his promises. And he's saying, God, okay, we're in a tough situation. We've got a lot of opposition here. This is a tough work. I look at it. The people look at it. We talked about this yesterday. Man, this looks like it's an impossible situation from a human perspective. But hey, God, right here, I have the divine impossibility of you breaking your promises. I'm going to put my trust here in you and that you will be faithful. And then the next thing that we see in the prayer, they repented of all sin. And don't miss this. Uh, I wish we had time to linger, but let me just put it in a, just a little phrase. It can, when sin, this is true in any life, it's true in any ministry. And your ministry is only as strong as your weakest link. When sin goes unchecked, prayer goes unanswered. And again, that's why we're back to the importance of putting the focus on holiness. Because power in ministry comes through purity of heart and life. And then we see the next thing he did, he surrendered the human inability. He surrendered the human inability as an opportunity for God to demonstrate his invincibility. In other words, he didn't whine about their weakness. He didn't whine about their past failures. He didn't whine about all of their, their problems. He celebrated them. He celebrated them as opportunities for God to demonstrate his invincibility. And then last, we see he was very specific in prayer. And you need to be specific in prayer to get specific answers. Take to God exactly what you need to accomplish the work that He's given you to do and then trust Him to provide it. And then look at the third truth. One of definitely the most important truths you see in the book of Nehemiah that we can apply. Put your feet to your prayers by staying at the work. The one thing the opposition was never able to stop in the book of Nehemiah was God's people mixing the mortar and passing another brick. Personal involvement, sacrifice, and persistence will always be necessary to complete God's work. So no matter what opposition comes against us, don't close your doors. Don't stop the work. Keep doing pregnancy tests. Keep reaching out, doing ultrasounds. Whatever you do, keep doing. Don't let opposition ever stop you. You know, in Ephesians 6, which is all about spiritual warfare, three times you see the phrase, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. And then the fourth lesson. From God's perspective, the character development of His people is more important than the success of our work. And don't miss this next sentence. This is not to say... God is not committed to the success of our work, but rather an acknowledgement that the success of God's work is, to de is dependent on the purity of God's workers. Great, great lesson. From God's perspective, as He's looking at your work, at your pregnancy center ministry, 
the character development of your board, your staff, your volunteers is more important than the success of the ministry. And again, it's not to say that God's not committed to the success of your ministry. He is. It's simply an acknowledgement that that success is dependent upon the purity of the workers and learning to lean on God, trust God. And let me mention, Nehemiah's success can be attributed to three factors. And what wonderful lessons for us. Number one, he was directed and shaped by God's Word. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself quotes or alludes to 14 different books of the Bible. This was a man of the Word that went to the Word meditated on the Word, believed it, trusted its promises. So he was directed and shaped by God's Word. This is a great word, for, especially for those of you in leadership, you directors. The second thing that we see about Nehemiah, his mission was birth, sustained, and accomplished through prayer. The book of Nehemiah opens and closes in prayer, and there are 12 different prayers recorded in the book. So not only is he a man of God's Word, he's a man of prayer, and he weds those things. The Word of God becomes his fuel for his praying, and that's the best way to pray. Use the fuel of God's Word as your prayers. And then the third thing about Nehemiah, his leadership was built on and maintained by purity of life and integrity of character. Nehemiah gave people... And here it is, directors, staff, board. Nehemiah gave the people an example worth following. And never forget, we said this last night, the God you communicate is not the God you talk about, but it's the God whose life you live out. You cannot impart to others what you do not possess yourself and this is why there is no more important ingredient in life or ministry than your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then look at the fifth application. Power to complete God's work is found in the unity of God's workers. As they lay aside differences that could divide in order to come together for God's glory to complete God's work. We don't have time to go to Psalm 133. I would encourage you to do that on your own. It's a beautiful psalm, very small psalm, where God says, oh, it's so good. It is oh, it's so pleasant when God's people dwell together in unity. And then he gives this illustration of unity. He says it's like the uh, dews of Hermon. And, and then he says it's there in the midst of where my people dwell in unity that I've commanded the blessing. In other words, where has God commanded His blessing? where we come together in unity to honor Him and accomplish His work. And that illustration is a great one. Hermon is the tallest mountain in the Middle East. It sits in the middle of a just desolate, barren, dry wilderness. But, when you, but, but it's an anomaly. The slopes of Mount Hermon are just full of plant life, animal life. It, it makes no sense at all. you got this almost like desert-like region, and then you got this mountain right in the middle of it that's just the picture of fertility and life and abundance. And you say, how in the world can that happen? 
the dews of Hermon. Because of the height of the mountain, it stays snow, uh, uh, the snows on top of it virtually year-round. And just the atmospheric conditions creates these incredible, something like we've never seen here in the state. It's almost like every day there's this torrential downfall of rain. And God says, that's what, that's what I do when my people dwell in unity. He said, when my people dwell in unity, when I see a ministry come together for my honor, for my glory, to accomplish my work, I will bless them. I will bring upon them the dews of Hermon, and I will give them fertility and life and abundance, and I will bless their ministry to be a blessing to others. Amen? Father, thank you. Um, so much more could be said, but enough's been said. Uh, enough for us to uh, really look to you uh, to apply uh, to our lives by your grace, uh, by your power. And give us the grace to do so. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.